Good morning. I'm Donald Wayne, and this is Tristalk Minipod for March the 6th, 2021. Thanks for joining me for another episode. It's a um, little after midnight on March the 6th, a Saturday morning, early Saturday morning. Uh, if you listen to our regular Trice Talk uh, podcast that we had on uh, Thursday night, I wasn't able to get to my uh, segment on HR, the HR1 bill for the People Act. So I thought uh, I would take this opportunity to cover it um, on a mini pod just because I've, I've been trying to get to it for uh, a couple of weeks now on the regular Trice Talk series, and it just never works out timing-wise. So um, I want to go ahead and, and talk about this, even though um, some of you may already know that H.R. Uh, 1 passed the House this past week. Uh, I believe on Wednesday. Yeah, it passed on Wednesday night. Uh, and now it's gone to the Senate. And I think the Senate's going to have it. Uh, they can have it up to 20 days, I believe they said. They'll they'll deliberate it. But um, so it's, it's kind of halfway through the approval process. Uh, those of us who are conservative uh, are hoping that it gets stopped by the Senate, that it will not pass there. Uh, and even with Kamala Harris being able to uh, break a tie vote, if there is one, uh, we're, we're, you know, there's still some hope that maybe some Democrats uh, will not support the bill as it as it stands right now. So anyway, I want to go over um, some of the aspects of the HR one that was passed by the House this week, and I'm going to use an article from PJ Media written by. Um, Tyler O'Neill, and it was published on March the 4th. Um, and it doesn't cover everything that's in the bill. It kind of hits some high points, but I'll, I'll go over that as, as we go along and I'll stop and comment occasionally when I get, get, go through a section that, uh, I have some thoughts about anyway. All right. The article reads, on Wednesday evening, the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which federalizes state election law and undermines key safeguards such as voter ID. The bill passed 220 to 210, with every Republican voting against it and two not voting at all, and every Democrat but one voting for it. This kind of bill should concern every American that cares about the future of our country. H.R. 1 requires states to allow any eligible voter to vote by mail in federal elections, a practice that is inherently less secure than in-person voting. The bill requires states to allow any eligible voter to use ballot drop boxes of the kind that Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's Center for Technology and Civic Life financed in the 2020 election, likely driving up the turnout in blue areas. H.R. 1 mandates that states accept ballots that arrive in the mail up to 10 days after Election Day, so long as they had been postmarked on or before Election Day. 
echoing a controversial practice that uh, occurred in Pennsylvania last year. Now, that's one of the first places I'm going to stop. Number one, um, this this mail-in voting, I, I think we proved in the last election that there's a lot of things wrong with that system. There's a lot of issues. Uh, unfortunately, since uh, Joe Biden won the election, I don't know that we'll ever get any resolution to to a lot of those issues that were that brought up. And I'm not going to do, I'm not going to include or inject voter fraud into this conversation tonight because that's not really what this is about. But this ties into what the Democrats are wanting to do with this bill. Now, I will say this bill was not created because of last year's election. So it wasn't a bunch of Democrats that say, hey, this works real well, so let's let's do this. Uh, actually, this same bill, I think pretty much, and it may have been modified to some degree, but it was H.R. 1 was introduced in uh, 2019 when Donald Trump was still president, and it didn't go anywhere. And I believe it's been introduced before a time before that. Um, so it's been around a while. Democrats have been trying to get this through um, and and just have not been successful. Uh, I think they tried to get it through, you know, while uh, Obama was still in office. But, of course, the uh, Republicans took back the House uh, before Obama, you know, before the end of his term. So we you know, had a little bit of clout and, and stopped it. But the other thing is, of course, the, the voter, the ballot drop boxes. I mean, I used the ballot drop box last year pretty much. Um, I registered to get a mail-in ballot early because they, you know, they, um, they uh, recommended that everybody do that because they were not sure at the time that people would be able that the polling places would be open for in-person voting last year. Uh, whether or not that was true, whether or not that was just a ploy to get all these uh, mail-in ballots sent out to everybody. I know myself that I received two ballots last year. Um, not to say whether or not I could have successively voted twice. Uh, I have no way of knowing whether that was possible, but just the fact that they did not keep up with the fact that I'd already gotten one ballot and they sent me another one, that makes me suspect of the system. Also on the ballot drop boxes, um, I know in, in my area, they were only installed, um, there was one at the, at, at my county election uh, place over here. Now, there were several places, but they were all county facilities uh, where the drop boxes were located or fire stations, fire or police stations, I should say. So uh, they felt like that those were pretty secure. But I know in California, there were stories and pictures of pallet drop boxes in all kinds of locations. And with questions about how secure they are, and even about uh, they contracted with people or they allowed people 
certain individuals, I guess they were registered to pick up those ballot boxes and, and bring them in. So there's, there's all kinds of issues with those ballot boxes uh, and, and, and the safety of them and the security of them. But according to HR1, this is something they want to continue. All right, so HR1 also creates a nationwide automatic voter registration program, which would likely result in double registrations and registration of non-citizens. Now, that's the opinion of the, the uh, author, the author. <laughs> the reporter that did this article. So I, I'm, I don't know whether, you know, there's any proof that that occurred or not, or, but I think that's an opinion that a lot of us have that is a possibility with this automatic voter registration program. Now I know here in Georgia where I live, it, you know, one of the ways that you're automatically registered to vote is if you get a driver's license um, I'm, I'm not sure that you automatically get registered or you automatically get a notification from, um, voter registration and asking you whether or not you want to go ahead and vote. Um, so, but it, it, it's still, uh, part of the process of when you get your driver's license in the state. HR one explicitly exempts from prosecution, people who are not eligible to vote in elections for federal office, but were automatically registered to vote. So in other words, if the county screws up, registers you to vote, you're sent a notification um, and you go out and vote knowing that you're, you're really not eligible to vote. Maybe you're illegal <laughs> or maybe you're uh, an ex-con or something, whatever the situation may be and you go vote knowing that you're not eligible really, and then somebody finds out, oh, well, wait a minute, he's not supposed to be voting, or she, then you're exempt for prosecution. In other words, it's not your problem. If somebody told you you were eligible to vote, but you knew better, you thought, well, they must have made a mistake. It's kind of like if if, you're, if your bank <laughs> puts... <laughs> puts uh, an extra $500,000 in your checking by mistake. You're only responsible. <laughs> well, you're not really responsible if they put it in there, but if you go out and spend it, you are. But here the federal government says, well, even if you know that that's not, you're not eligible to vote, then uh, you do vote uh, because you were told by somebody down there at the voter registration office. Well, you know, you get a pass. It's not your fault. You were misinformed. And this bill also allows felons who have completed their incarceration to vote. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. I guess if there were some qualifications to this, if there were levels, you know, I think if you murdered, you know, two or three people or um, a family member or something and you get out after 20 or 30 years or whatever, um, I don't know how I would feel about you. I mean, there's supposed to be, you know, part of the punishment is that you do lose some rights in this country. Like you can't ever own a firearm legally. So if you're going to give them a right to vote, are you going to start letting them possess firearms as well? 
a guy that was, uh, or a person that was sent to prison for, you know, for heinous crimes, um, you know, drug possession or drug usage or those kind of things, you know, I would be more inclined to say, I don't have a problem with them getting their right to vote. But again, I think there should be qualifiers to that particular uh, item in the bill. And there may be, but uh, they're not mentioned here. Here's one that really makes you have to lean back in your chair and say, what? HR1 says that this bill would match or would kick in for each grassroots contribution to a candidate. So if a donation to a house candidate was $200, that would, and that would make them eligible to receive $1,200 matching funds from the federal government. Oh, which is our money, actually. It's not the federal government's, even though they talk about it and they spend it like it's theirs. So that particular House candidate could end up with $1,400, where they only started out with $200 they raised from other from other uh, supporters. So in essence, you're going to be, we, the American people will be funding campaigns of people that we may not agree with their ideology or, or the issues that they support or the issues that they promise that they're going to push if they're elected, which tell me if that doesn't sound wrong. I mean, part of the process in this country is that we get to vote for people who who um, embellish the same things that we do, that believe in the same values that we do and wants to uh, support bills that kind of uh, further those ideals and not vote for things that we do not believe in. Of course, <laughs> you know. Uh, Congress has its lowest rating, I believe. Uh, they haven't talked about it lately, but the lowest rating um, last year of any Congress ever in, in, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years, something like that. So it doesn't seem like Congress really does what they tell us they're going to do anyway. Uh, but still, you know, when we vote for somebody, it's because hopefully it's we believe or they're they believe in what we want and they're there. We put them in office to further those ideals, to further those uh, that that purpose, those laws in this country. But this is going to make us through a roundabout way of taxation contributing to people that we wouldn't vote for if they were the only candidate running. This article doesn't mention that there's a cap on the matching fund pool, so uh, I won't go into that. But, gee, I would hope there would be. <laughs> at, at a six-to-one ratio, I hope there is a cap on that. 
this bill would reduce the number of members on the Federal Election Commission from six to five. Democrats argued that this will allow the commission to avoid deadlock and do its job, but Republicans warned that this would make the FEC a partisan weapon. The bill would also require politically active organizations, including 401c3s or nonprofits, to disclose donors who give $10,000 or more. This bill would also expand the definition of election-related communications. That one's a little fuzzy. That one concerns us a little bit because, you know, there's all kinds of talk about, um, you know, uh, stifling conservative talk shows, uh, conservative stations primarily, Fox, uh, Newsmax, uh, programs like Rush Limbaugh's, may rest in peace. Sean Hannity, you know, they want to tamp those down because they know those are the only bastions. Well, there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of podcasts, and there's a number of other conservative talk radio programs across the country. Uh, maybe not quite on the national level that, uh, that, uh, Rush Limbaugh has been on for all those years or even Sean Hannity, but still, Expand the definition of election-related communications. They're looking for ways because they say that conservatives and and places like Fox News are uh, putting forth conspiracy theories that, that cannot be proven, like election tampering or election fraud. So they're looking for ways to shut us up, basically. And, and many of uh, our podcast friends have experienced issues with being shut down and, um, and, and taken off. And, and, of course, you know, the issues with Twitter and so forth and, and uh, Facebook. I mean, it, it does seem like that there's a concerted effort on the left to try to limit conservatives' ability to express their opinions, even the podcasts that we do. Reduce the influence of independent expenditure-only super PACs, such as campaign finance regulations would limit Americans' ability to band together to advocate political causes they believe in. That's something they'd like to see happen. While Democrats railing against dark money has convinced Americans there is something inherently sleazy about groups of Americans spending money to advocate for causes they believe in, Americans do not lose their right to free speech when they entered the political arena. The mandated disclosure of an organization's donors, in particular, undercuts this fundamental right. It is beyond debate that the freedom to engage in an association for the advancement of beliefs and ideas is an inseparable aspect of the liberty assured by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court wrote in the landmark case 
NAACP versus Alabama in 1958. The state of Alabama had ordered the NAACP to hand over a list of its members during the era of segregation when the KKK held tremendous power in the state. The Supreme Court defended the NAACP from this government harassment. So basically, you know, think back just a few months ago or even back into January after the the so-called insurrection at the Capitol building, uh, there's a lot of people on the left in this country and their supporters that would like to know, they would like to be able to identify Donald Trump supporters. because they want to look for ways to punish us for supporting Donald Trump or supporting conservative ideas in this country. And we could go into all the garbage that's gone on this week about, um, you know, uh, political correctness and, and the, the silencing, the, uh, the, the culture, uh, assaults that we've had to deal with this past week. But one of the things they would like to do on the left is to be able to identify these conservatives, these troublemakers, these people who support things that they do not want to see happen in this country, basically freedoms. And don't think for a minute that they won't try to find ways to punish those people. I mean, we go back to uh, the issue with the IRS during Barack Obama's time when there were some certain organizations that were harassed by the IRS because of who they were and their opposition to the Democrats and, and the things that Obama was trying to do. So these lists that they're looking for are a threat to our rights, to our freedoms. So the author goes on to say, the reporter goes on to say, tonight the House of Representatives voted in favor of a bill that tramples on the free speech and free association rights of American citizens. Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Zach Pruitt also said after the bill passed, Throughout its nearly 800 pages of complex and convoluted text, H.R. 1 imposes unworkable and invasive regulations on the ability of individual Americans and groups of citizens to discuss vital policy issues with elected officials or the public and to exercise constitutionally protected freedoms. The bill intrudes upon the private financial decisions made by everyday citizens, subjecting them to harassment and intimidation, simply for giving to causes they care about. Despite being called the For the People Act, it is anything but that, as the U.S. Supreme Court has made clear that the people lose 
when the government is the one deciding which ideas should prevail. We hope the Senate will see through this facade and reject this misleading and deeply flawed bill. So uh, like I said, this article doesn't cover every issue that I have with the HR one bill. Obviously, and of course I've, I've not read 800 pages. I doubt very serious, seriously if there's anybody in Congress that's read 800 pages. But one of the things that, um, that was not mentioned in that article was the provision allowing for 17 year olds to be able to register to vote if they will be 18 by election day. And that's a push. That was a push back uh, here in Georgia. Um, they're trying to get that done. So of course, uh, also we had that amendment to this bill introduced, uh, this past week. And, um, the amendment was to allow 16 year olds to vote. Of course it did not pass. But if it had passed, I wonder, based on this provision allowing 17-year-olds to vote, if if that were the case and 16-year-olds could now vote, I wonder if they would start pushing them to register when they're still 15 years old. I mean, see how ridiculous it could get? And I'm not going to express all my opinions about the 16-year-old voting age since it did not pass, but I have no doubt that it will be tried again, especially if the Democrats stay in power after next year's midterm elections. Because it's been introduced before, um, and Nancy Pelosi has expressed her her support of that measure uh, back as far back as uh, 2015. The bill also allows for expanded voting periods, similar to what we experienced last year at the height of the pandemic. Um, and that article did not cover, you know, some of the things in the bill that, that, that addresses the expanded voting periods. But it's not totally clear how long that period should be. But uh, the bill also establishes a national commission, which will have a lot of say in how the the different states uh, or the states in general conduct their elections if it's uh, on a national basis, like uh, senators and, uh, house of representatives. And of course the president, uh, it, it will not interfere with state only elections, but it'll, uh, they, they will be able to, uh, have say over what, how the states conduct their elections for any national office. So there's, there are many questions about whether last year's shutdown due to the pandemic gave the Democrats the perfect opportunity to get what they thought they needed to win the November elections. And I, I think probably now looking at the things in this bill, I think they already had an idea of what they, they had been wanting to do anyway. And the pandemic gave open the door to that because they, 
you know, they use the, the fear and intimidation that, well, you know, people aren't going to be able to go to the polls in November. And they were saying this back in March of last year. I do believe in the right to vote and, and all eligible voters should have the right and opportunity to vote in whatever election they want to vote in. And I know there are some legitimate reasons uh, to be concerned about elections and, and, and whether um, everybody's voting rights have been protected over the years, especially in the South. Uh, issues with blacks being intimidated and, and not um, and, and maybe prevented to vote in, in, in certain areas of the country. Um, and there's been issues for numbers of years, but I find it hard to believe in the last 15 or 20 years that that's, that's been the norm in this country. Um, but you know, they say that a lot of this is brought about by the fact that, you know, they're always accusing uh, conservatives or Republicans of trying to clean voter rolls in their states to get rid of black voters or minority voters just in general or any voters that, that might possibly vote Democrat. And I can't say one way or the other whether or not that's happened. It's probably happened on both sides. But I also know, especially because of all the stuff that went on here in Georgia in the last uh, election cycle, that voter rolls are an item of contention because they do get out of date. A lot of people move out of state. Uh, and, and with no intention of coming back. And why should they get to vote in a state that they're not living in anymore or they're not coming back to? I, I, it's, it doesn't make sense. Or should people, personally, I don't think, if you just move to a state, say you move, you move to Georgia uh, one week and the election is next week, of course, we do have a voter registration limit here in Georgia, and I'm not sure whether or not there's anything in H.R. 1. And, oh, yeah, there is something in there. I, I don't think it was mentioned in that guy's article, but now that I'm talking about it, um, H.R. 1 allows for registration up to the day of the election or, or through the day of the election. So you could decide, um, you know, on the day of the, of the election that, by golly, I want to vote. So you run down there, you register, and you vote that same day. Now, the problem I have with that is unless you've been living in a cave and you didn't realize, you know, it was election coming up or, you know, for whatever reason, you hadn't made up your mind on a candidate, if you haven't decided before election day who you're going to vote for, I don't really know how reliable of a voter you are. And the chances are you're just going to haphazardly vote for either one on an emotional basis or you're going to vote, uh, you know, because somebody else told you this is the right person to vote for. Do, do, does that person have a right to vote? Well, they will, according to HR1, 
at least with uh, the voter registration in Georgia being uh, the cutoff is the month before, month prior, or your residency requirement, I know, is the month prior. But um, that at least gives the state, number one, time to, to process the list and make sure that list is updated, you know, when it comes to uh, the date of vote. And also, if they do verify that a person is living in the state, I'm not sure what effort they go through to make sure that people who register are actually eligible or actually live where they say they're going to where, where they're living. I don't know. But it still makes sense that you have to register, you know, sometime prior to Election Day. And that also makes sure that you're someone who has opportunity to check out the issues and make sure that you're, you know, you're voting for the one that, you know, is, is, is going to support the ideas that you support or at least in theory. So this whole thing about allowing people to run up there the day of, of the election. And again, that goes back to, in my mind, I can, I can see, where that could be a problem with these groups that go out there and try to rush everybody to the polls. And you know, they're working in areas that are, are Democrat and they're pushing all these Democrats or what they hope to be Democrats down to the polls to vote. And that's what will happen most definitely if you can register and then vote the same day. That doesn't make sense to me because that person who would do that, except maybe a very small percentage of people for whatever reason may not have had the opportunity. Maybe they'd been in a coma up until a week or two before the election or the day before the election. I don't know. There may be some justification for very few cases, but the average person, if he's registering and going down there to vote the same day, uh, I'm not quite sure how good that vote will be, but then Democrats don't care as long as you're voting for who they want you to vote for. So, like I said, I believe in the right to vote and all eligible, eligible voters should have the opportunity to vote their choices in elections without intimidation, without restrictions, other than what is right by the law and what makes sense. But with that right comes responsibility, responsibility to be informed about who and what you're voting for and why you're voting for them. It's my belief that if you have to go face to face with potential voters in order to get them to participate, or if you have to organize rallies or entice people to vote, then you're not only going to get a voter who that, that you're not going to get a voter who is well-informed and who really cares about that vote. I believe that people that care about the future of this country will go freely to vote and do so without having to be carpooled, bust, or incentivized. And while having to stand in line to exercise a constitutional right may be an effort, so was the founding father, founding and defense of this country. 
it's not supposed to be easy. Things that are important don't have to be easy. I realize that there are some that are not able to get to the polls. And, and so there are exceptions. There are people that should be accommodated. And there have been in the past. But for me, every time I stand in that line, and it was hard for me last year to, to do um, uh, mail-in voting. It was extremely hard. In fact, I waited up to the last minute. Um, you know, I pushed the line because I still was telling myself, well, I, I really want to go stand in that line and vote. But every time I stand in that line, I do so with little old couples that, that look like they can barely get around or, or sometimes they, one of them, you know, will push a little chair around so they can sit down each time the line after the line moves. I see moms or dads in line with two or three small kids that make that process so much more difficult. Have you ever stood in line and, and seen some poor parent with uh, two or three kids? Sometimes you'll see a mom with a, a newborn in her arms and, and a couple of uh, uh, smaller ones next to her trying to keep them all close at hand. I've seen handicapped citizens wheelchairs in line to vote. Now, um, I know in recent years, I've seen that the polling places that I, the polling place that I go to, they allow handicapped people to go, uh, they, to bypass the lines, but I've seen some people refuse to bypass the lines and stay in line, even though they were handicapped because they didn't feel like they were any more special than the person in front of them. And you know what I don't see in the lines at the polling places? I've never seen it. Americans bitching about having to get out and stand in line to vote that day. I would like to think that it is because they love this country so much that they, they, they cherish the right to vote. They realize how important it is to let their voices be heard. If you've got to give someone a pair of sneakers to get them to vote, in my book, that's not an American who cares about this country. It's not a, a person who cares about who actually gets elected to office. It's a person who is looking for something for themselves. All the freedoms and rights that we have as Americans and that we enjoy were bought with someone's blood. But somehow too many people have lost sight of that. They want to enjoy the freedoms, but they don't want any strings attached. They don't want any responsibility that goes with it. It's no wonder that we're in the shape that we're in today. Too many people want things to be too easy. I'm Donald Wayne, and this has been Tristalk Minipod. I appreciate you listening, and hope you'll join Dennis Lee, Eric Kirk, and myself on Sunday night for Tristalk Live at 11 p.m. Stay safe, everybody. <laughs>